Welcome to Ask Me Anything. Normally, I am not the host on this program. Normally, I'm the one that's being asked questions. Today, we have an incredible privilege of having somebody that I frequently ask questions to and whose books and whose talks I listen to um, to, to get answers for things, and that is Rebecca McLaughlin. Uh, who has been here at the Summit Church, is a friend of ours. And Rebecca, I just want to thank you so much for joining us on this uh, Ask Me Anything podcast. Welcome. I'm glad to be. I'm kind of sad, though, that can I not just flip things over and ask you questions? That would be fun. <laughs> yeah, we will. I, will. I will judo it right back on you and, and okay. we'll see if we can get you to do it. Because, listen, we are, we, are, we are truly honored. And specifically, I wanted to ask, um, I'm going to do this in, in two parts. We're going to do one today and then one you know, for um, our, our next podcast. Around your new book, Is Christmas Unbelievable? Which, you know, I just, by the way, I just want to say I love the title because I think a lot of people are afraid to express that. They're like, mm. it feels good. It's sentimental. Mm. I don't want it to go away, but is it really, I mean, is there, is there something behind this? So one of the questions that you asked in that book was, can we actually take the gospel seriously? Are these mm. sentimental fairy tales? And so there you go. Can we take the gospel seriously, specifically as it relates to the Christmas narratives? Yeah, it's funny you should say that even the title is is a place that people may not want to go, because that, that's partly why I wrote this book to say, okay, let's just for a minute strip the sentiment aside and look at the claims being made about Jesus. Can we take them seriously? Is this even credible at all? And I think one of the big questions that's mixed into that is, can we take the four gospel accounts of Jesus' life seriously? And in particular, when it comes to Christmas, can we take the gospels of Matthew and Luke seriously as those are the ones that specifically kind of drill into Jesus's birth narratives? Mm. And so a couple of thoughts just more broadly on the gospels before we get into birth narratives specifically. People tend to think, well, you know, the Gospels were written a long time after the events that they record. So, you know, you and I may not even remember what we had for breakfast last week. How could somebody be expected to remember things that happened decades ago with accuracy? And there are a few things that I think uh, we need to, uh, to look into there. One is the Gospels are not like you or me being asked things that like random stuff that happened decades ago. It's more like Jesus had, you know, this crack team of disciples who we trained up his specific like day job was to learn his teachings. Uh, he, they then like rehearsed these stories for decades after his, after his death. Like that was what they were doing. He then had many, many other people, probably hundreds of other people who traveled around with him, who saw the miracles that he did, who witnessed his teaching. So we actually have a, a, a rich resource of witnesses who feed into the gospel account of Jesus' life. It's not just like, you know, one dude scratching his head, trying to remember what happened 30 years ago. So, so that for context, but then like, what about these particular stories we get in, in Matthew and Luke about Jesus' birth, which you could say, well, suspiciously, they're not in Mark's gospel, which was the first one to be written down. They're not in John's gospel, which is the last one. So were they just kind of made up to add on to, you know, make this very charismatic teacher seem more divine um, by coming up with a sort of birth narrative story where he's actually conceived by the Holy Spirit and, and born of a virgin? And I think the answer to that question is is no, because as we look back at um, the even like comparing them to the other gospel accounts and how they start, John's gospel is extremely clear about Jesus's divinity. He just tells it in a different way. Mark's gospel is also actually extremely clear about Jesus's divinity and just tells it in a different way. So the fact that Matthew and Luke kind of dig into Jesus's birth narrative doesn't mean they're doing something fundamentally different from what the other gospels are doing so i think we can take it very seriously what they say and then you can say well you know matthew's um, account and luke's account 
uh, agree on, on the fundamentals. They agree that Jesus was born of a virgin named Mary. They agree that he was born in Bethlehem, et cetera, et cetera. But they actually tell us different stories around the story of Jesus' birth. And again, as we, as we look at the four gospel accounts together, we often see that. We often see different stories told from different people's perspectives, especially if you look at Matthew and Luke, you'll find that Luke focuses on Mary's perspective, while Matthew focuses on, on Joseph's perspective on the events. Um, and that's actually just, it's, it's a very natural um, part of the fact that the Gospels are all kind of telling their own unique angles on Jesus' life, pulling on the, the memories of, of different people who witness different parts of it. So I don't think it's sort of suspect in and of itself that we hear different um, pieces of the story, I guess, from, from Matthew and from Luke. And when it comes to the question, you know, why were the Gospels written down decades after Jesus's um, ministry, life, death and resurrection um, versus sort of right away? Well, I'm, I'm really compelled by scholars like Richard Borkham, who say the Gospels were written down precisely because the eyewitnesses were starting to die out. And so it was really important to get an accurate record of what they'd seen and heard of Jesus before that happened so that it could be passed down um, to us now. So I, I think we can see the Gospels as being you know, historically reliable, accurate documents, um, preserving those memories of those people who traveled with Jesus, who um, heard his own teachings, who met with folks who'd, who'd lived alongside him, um, et cetera. So um, Bart Ehrman lives here in our backyard, here where I recorded this from, and I know you actually talked about him several times in the book. Um, you know, I, I, there are questions that he will ask. Um, one I've heard is, you know, hey, you, you've got Matthew and Luke. They've got two entirely different, even genealogies for Jesus. Clearly, mm. this is something that was made up after the fact to try to bolster his credentials. So mm. that one in particular, um, how would you respond to that? And then let me just kind of tag on something real fast at the end. And that is, what's the hardest one that you feel like, like if somebody is going to hear a question um, that I don't believe these narratives are actually true. What's the one that you think they've probably heard or struggle with, or the one that Christians really need to, we need to know how to, how to explain or answer. Yeah. Well, answering your second question first, actually my daughter, who's 11 is in Cambridge public middle school here. And, um, in a, in a recent class, uh, that was like social studies at her school, the teacher was teaching, um, not actually from Bart Ehrman, but from another guy, Reza Aslan, who has some, some similar views to Bart, Bart Ehrman, though with far less personal expertise on these questions. And one of the questions at the bottom, like for the kids to fill in, was which part of um, the narrative of Jesus' birth is technically false? And it was the idea that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Now, this is a claim that's, that's clearly made in the Gospels, and the, the reason given is that Joseph had to go to Bethlehem in order to um, be registered um, as part of a census that was being done. Um, and we have other historical records that say, actually, the, the timelines don't add up. Because if Jesus was born during the reign of King Herod, which is what the Gospels tell us as well, then actually the census that was done on the Quirinius doesn't like line up time-wise with that. There's sort of a you know, several years gap that, that would mean that it was it wouldn't make sense for the, the census to be taking Jesus there and we don't have a record of, of that particular census. Now again I kind of like what Richard Borkham says about this um, as you know what scrap that it may not have been Richard Borkham my mind is, is scratching us whether it was Richard Borkham or Daryl Bock one or the other who <laughs> um, was saying who said that actually we shouldn't assume that where the gospels um, on the, the few historical details like this that, that they do conflict with some other ancient sources we shouldn't necessarily assume that the Gospels are wrong. 
because actually the gospels in terms of like how um, soon after the events that they were written down and the, the wealth of um, local and cultural knowledge that they preserve, actually the gospels are really impressive historical documents. Mm. So if some, you know, for example, the, the, um, the historian Josephus gives a different date for something, we shouldn't necessarily assume that he's right and the gospel authors are wrong. Right. It's almost like an unfair bias against the gospel as a historical document. Because yeah, if yeah. it were if it were were not the Bible, people would just assume, well, this is proof that it happened there because somebody close to it and that and that was involved in it recorded it this way. Yeah, and the odd thing is as well, um, if you were going to make up a reason to get Jesus to Bethlehem to line up with the Old Testament prophecies, the reason could have been, well, you know, Joseph's favorite uncle Moses invited them over, you know, to stay for a few weeks. Like there are simpler ways than saying there was this massive census. But a lot of people could say, no, 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 that didn't happen then, you know, or. Yeah. So, so actually, if you were going to make a, a historical claim that you knew to be false, you would make it far less extravagant <laughs> than saying there was this big center of traffic, you know, so right. shooting yourself in the foot to do that. Yes. Yeah, um, so it, it seems to me that uh, I mean, there's clearly much about the ancient world that we don't know. And the wealth of historical information that we get from the Gospels, even like setting aside the um, the ways in which the Gospels point us to, to Jesus as our Lord and Savior it is extraordinary and extremely impressive. So I don't think we can readily dismiss the Gospel right. account of Jesus' birth on that basis. So give us one minute, because that's what, what we got about left, one minute on the, the two different genealogies, because I do hear people ask that. Yeah, well, with genealogies, we tend to assume that when it says, you know, so-and-so is a father of so-and-so, is a father of so-and-so, father of so-and-so, we assume that it's like father to son, to son, to son, to son, straight up without kind of interruptions. Actually, what we know from genealogies and even from the, the way that Jesus' birth genealogies are set up, like Jesus, the, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Well, Jesus isn't the son of David in the kind of immediately like proceeding from David's loins kind of sense, nor is David the son of Abraham in that sense. So we, we, we know that genealogies skip over generations and we know that they are told in such a way as to, to tell us a story about that person, not just to kind of give us their, their DNA line. So the fact that Luke and Matthew give us genealogies of Jesus, which converge in places and diverge in other places, it doesn't actually trouble me because there, there could be a lot of skipping of generations. They could also be sort of weaving in and out of, of the bloodline, if that makes sense. Right. So somebody could, you know, you could be following a different strand of Jesus's genealogy um, and heritage getting back to King David for example so I don't think it's concerning I think we, we need to see the genealogies as, as more uh, storytelling rather than just giving us a kind of father to son to son to son to son right picture. yeah and what's interesting is is it's, it's is that part of the genealogy is not usually troubling to the Jewish reader who would have you know read some of these first things because they understood how so reading it from a 21st century skeptics viewpoint you're like, well, yeah, but that's not how it was written or intended to be read. Right, exactly. Yeah, that's right. Well, now you know why I go to Rebecca uh, for questions that I have. She's actually going to join us again, um, so I hope you'll tune back in next week. Rebecca, thank you for being here. Thank you for writing this book and for helping us kind of process some of these things. Thanks for having me.